Good morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church Fall Break Edition. Uh, if you're joining us online from the beach or wherever you happen to be, we're glad that you are at least joining us online. We're a little jealous uh, that, uh, you know, you're, you're soaking up some sun and uh, the waves and all that good stuff. So uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is really good to be with you, you, with you today. There's two things I loved about worship today uh, beyond the obvious that we got to make much of Jesus. One, um, I love when our rhythm section matches, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then more importantly, uh, man, I love the fact that uh, Mitchell uh, can be gone and uh, we have such amazing leaders who serve our church and just step up and you don't even miss a beat. So they did a great job. Great, great job. All right, if you got a, if you got a Bible today, turn to Mark chapter four. We're continuing our series through the book of Mark. Uh, we are coming upon a story uh, we're going to pick up in verse 35 uh, that I think maybe we've heard a little too often. Uh, this story that we're going to hear about Jesus calming the storm is so familiar that for many of us, it's a little domesticated, that it's a little too familiar, that perhaps our familiarity with the story causes us to lose the magnitude of it, how shocking, how disorienting, and how wild of a story this really is. This story is insane. And so what I would love for you to do with me right now is would you just quickly pray this with me as we read this passage again? And would you ask God to give you fresh eyes and ears to hear this story as if you were hearing it for the very first time? So let's pray. Father, we believe your word is not only true, but it is for our good. Father, in these moments, could we hear this story as if it was for the first time. Show us your truth. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, now that's the day that we've talked about over the past couple weeks, the same day that Jesus was teaching the crowds. You remember Jesus was teaching the crowds from a boat, uh, some parables last time we were together last week, and so Jesus is still on the boat. All right, that same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they, these Jesus' disciples, were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now this story starts very normally. Jesus is teaching. He's obviously tired. If he goes back to the shore, there's a crowd waiting for him. Uh, and so instead, he suggests what any of us would probably suggest in this sort of situation. Let's go somewhere where there's not a crowd. Let's go to the other side. Now, they're at the Sea of Galilee. We talk about it, the Sea of Galilee. Really, it's kind of more like a lake in scope and size. And so they're going to just go over to the other side of this 
body of water. And Jesus, obviously tired from a long day of teaching parables of this massive crowd, goes to the back of the boat, lays down on a cushion, and takes a nap. This starts out very ordinary, just like if you would go, hey, let's take the family and go to Legoland, right? And you're driving down 75 to 85, right? Going to get off of 400, you're going to Legoland, and there's people falling asleep in the back seat, right? This is kind of the way the story starts. And then something that is unexpected happened, this great storm comes. Now, it's very common on the Sea of Galilee for storms to form. The water would, or the wind would come up over the mountains and meet the, the wind coming up from uh, the, uh, the body of water and would cause these kind of sudden, crazy storms. But this storm is so bad that even these men in the boat, who you remember, many of Jesus' disciples are professional fishermen. They grew up on the water. This is their like home base that these professional fishermen are to the point where they are freaking out. This storm is so bad that these men are going, we are going to die. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a storm where you thought you were going to die. Uh, I have. Uh, Several years ago, Kristen and I had 12 high school students. We took them on a mission trip to Chiang Mai, Thailand. It was an incredible trip. I don't know if you know anything about that part of the world, but often they have storms called typhoons which are kind of like miniature hurricanes, all right? And so we are flying uh, from Chiang Mai to Bangkok. We arrive in Bangkok, and the airport is going insane. Just bonkers nuts because there's this massive typhoon uh, coming into the area. Now, Kristen and I have very different personalities. We think about things in a very different way. And so Kristen was like, please, God, would you cancel this flight? And I was thinking, Please, can we get on the plane? Because I do not want to be stuck in the Bangkok airport, right? I don't know if you've had the pleasure of being at the Bangkok airport. It's not really the nicest airport on the face of the planet. So I'm like, let's get the heck out of here. You know what I mean? Like, we'll go somewhere else. And so they boarded us on the plane. We flew to Hong Kong. And I was quickly regretting every single prayer I made about getting out of Bangkok. I've never been on a flight like this in my life. The cabin was up and down, up and down, up and down. At one point, we heard the captain over the radio, who he must not have pushed the right button. He was not talking to anyone on our plane, but calling for help and guidance from a tower somewhere else. And we all thought, looking around like, no, this is serious. Like, we're flying through the middle of a typhoon. We finally land safely in Hong Kong, and the storm is so bad, you can't even stand up out of your seats. The airplane is rocking side to side, and everyone's struggling to get their bags. People are falling over. You're having to, I had to grip the sides of the seats on my way just to get off the plane. We get off the plane, and I look back, and there's light poles on the runway, and they are just blowing like palm trees. And I was like, I am a little terrified. I should have been praying with my wife, not against my wife. We ended up being stranded in the Hong Kong airport for a couple of days, which is a joy. But I'll tell you, if you want to be stranded, Hong Kong's a place to be stranded. They got like showers. Everybody speaks English. They think you're from Canada, but it's awesome. Like, it is a great place to be stranded. But I've been in a storm where I was absolutely terrified. So I totally get what's going on with these guys. Of course, they go to Jesus then and they say, Jesus, could, could you maybe take some time, wake up from a nap? I don't know how you're sleeping in the middle of this insanity and do something about our current predicament. 
And then he does. Here's what I want you to see today. There's two ways that the disciples respond. And this is sometimes what we miss in this story. The first way they respond is with fear. They are, yes, terrified by the storm. They go and wake Jesus up out of their great fear from the natural, the natural elements like raging around them. Then Jesus speaks a word. And the sea calms down immediately. The wind stops. And I don't know if you saw this or not in verse 41, but these men who are terrified at this storm, verse 41 says they were filled with great fear after the storm was calmed. That they were no longer afraid of the raging storm around them. That in a moment they were not afraid of perishing, but when Jesus calmed the storm, a new fear, a great fear, welled up in their hearts. Why? Why were they so terrified after the storm? Well, for starters, the ancient world had come to a consensus that the storm was un- that the sea was untamable. I don't know if you remember at this time, but often many different countries or nations would have their own god or gods of certain areas or or certain things. But there was this kind of growing consensus that the sea was something different altogether. In fact, if you remember from a couple weeks ago when we unpacked this title of Jesus as the Son of Man, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man defeats these beasts. You remember where the beasts come from? The beasts come from the sea. And so there is this built-in fear of the sea. It's wild and unpredictable and untamable, and yet they see Jesus speak a word, and what seems to be wild and untamable and unpredictable beyond the control of anyone is silenced in a moment. Which is why in verse 41 they turn to each other and say, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? can hear the questions. They're like, we thought we were traveling with a rabbi, a teacher. We thought we were traveling with a miracle worker for sure, but we think in this moment we might have underestimated who is in the boat with us. And we're actually more terrified about who he is than we were about the storm. He's the Messiah. I'm cool with it. He's a king in the line of David. I can roll with that. Jesus is a great healer. We've seen him heal. Great. I'm on board for that. He's a teacher with authority. Yes, I love it. I love being a part of his crew. I love being close to all of the teaching and healing, close to who we think are the future king. But hold up. Jesus, the one who speaks a word in the wind And the waves obey his voice. No, I'm freaking out about that. That is a different sort of power and a different sort of authority than anything the disciples thought they were getting into. Maybe they thought of Psalm 107. The psalmist writes in verse 23, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. Verse 25, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Maybe they went, whoa, 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 whoa. If he can tell them to stop, who told them to start? 
It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Verse 26, Psalm 107. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 29, he made the, Lord, the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. See, in that moment, the disciples are getting a glimpse of Jesus' true identity. That he is much more than they ever thought. And that true identity is terrifying to them. They're no longer afraid of dying. They're no longer saying, please help us, we're going to perish. In fact, death itself isn't even on their minds. Instead of fearing the storm, they realize they are face to face with the one who has the authority over the storm. Instead of being petrified by the possibility of dying, they are standing in front of the giver of life himself. And this is a truly terrifying thought. That Jesus could very well be the one who has the power to calm the storm with a spoken word. And the implication would be that he then is the Lord over nature, over the wind and the waves, and he is that Lord at all times. My uh, sister uh, in high school worked at a pharmacy, a local pharmacy in our hometown. She actually worked with Mitchell there. I don't know if you guys know that Mitchell and I's friendship goes back that far. You should ask Mitchell to tell you this story one time. I've only heard it from him and my sister uh, but do you guys remember years ago when um, uh, uh, Oxycontin was being stolen from pharmacies? So that happened to Mitchell and my sister. A guy came in with a gun, pointed a gun at them, and asked for these drugs. Terrifying, right? You know the only thing more terrifying than a man with a loaded gun demanding something of you while you're staring down the barrel of the gun? Perhaps as being in the boat with a Lord who ultimately decides every single breath that you breathe. So these disciples are absolutely terrified. And I want to be clear, they're not afraid as if they're in the boat with an enemy. This is not fear at God's wrath or his anger. This is a fear that's in the response to the sheer magnitude of who Jesus is. The wonder of his majesty, the realization that there's more mystery here, this breathtaking view of God himself. I love, N.T. Wright says this in his book that he wrote on worship. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity, he says, either means that or it means nothing. It is, I love this turn of phrase, either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham. 
nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, he says, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Do you hear what he just said? The mystery of Christianity revolves around this idea that Jesus is God himself in person. That the creator God who spoke all things into existence took on human flesh and walked with people. And he says this is a devastating reality. Why? Because it changes the way that we see everything. It should rearrange everything about the world for us. And then he says, but most of us can't deal with this concept. That the Jesus that we sing about, that the Jesus that we pray to, that the Jesus that we put the, you know, like little bumper stickers on our car about, that the Jesus that we reference and passing in our relationships is the Lord of all. And this fear then of who Jesus is really comes from two different places, two different ideas. First, that he's God, which means that he is powerful and sovereign over all things. He has power over nature and the storms and all of those things. But the second, which I think is what the disciples were experiencing maybe for the first time, that he is beyond our control. This is what's terrifying for us the most. That Jesus is not predictable. That Jesus is not an accessory. That Jesus is not someone like a life coach who's coming alongside of us to make sure we can live our best life now. But Jesus is Lord of all things. The fear of this unpredictability or that God is beyond our control is hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's like, God, hold up. Hold up, you just went off the syllabus. This is not okay. It causes great fear inside of us. Sure, like the disciples, we fear the weather. I was afraid on that plane. Part of the reason we fear the weather is because it's so far beyond anything that we could control. And likewise, in this moment, the disciples are realizing so is Jesus himself. They're terrified because what they are realizing is the man in the boat with them is as as uncontrollable as nature itself. That he does as he pleases, not what pleases us. That he is under the authority of no one. That he is so powerful that he can speak and the wind and the waves obey him. That his power isn't harnessed by us. That he alone commands what he wills to command at his own good pleasure. That Jesus is more than just a projection of our own desires. And that his main function is not to give us what we want. And that is terrifying. Perhaps at this point, the disciples thought, we're getting in good with a powerful person. We're on Jesus' crew. We're going to be one of the chosen. 
that help the Son of Man usher in this new kingdom, and then they realize, oh no, this is altogether different from what we thought. It is a terrifying thing to realize that you are small, that you are insignificant, that you are face to face with the majesty, glory, power, mystery of God himself. N.T. Wright continues and says this, at a more sophisticated level, the God I want will be a God who lives up to my intellectual expectations. A God of whom I can approve rationally, judiciously, under consideration, and weighing, and weighing up of theological probabilities. I want this God, he says, because he or it will underwrite my intellectual arrogance. He will boast, uh, boost my sense of being a refined modern thinker. The net result, he says, is that I become God, and this God that I've made becomes my puppet. No one falls down on their face before the God that they wanted. No one trembles at the word of a homemade God. Nobody goes out with fire in their belly to heal the sick, to clothe the naked, to teach the ignorant, to feed the hungry because of the God they wanted. They are more likely to stay at home with their feet up. You see, this is so important for us to grasp because the character and nature of who Jesus is being beyond our control and sometimes not want what we want is the very thing that makes this Christian life worth living. So let me just take a couple moments. Can I put on dad hat for a second? You guys cool with that? Okay, good. Some of you are like, dad, you can't dad me, you young whippersnapper, right? And some of you are like, uh, yeah, that seems normal. You're pretty old, right? Yeah. So one thing popular, especially with younger adults, many of whom are in our church currently, is this idea of deconstruction. Perhaps you've heard people talk about it on social media or whatever. Here, the process is really simple. It's not new. It's really old that you go through a process of tearing everything that you believe down to the studs, right? Examining every single thing that you believe and see if there's any truth in it. Now, let me just say, I think this process is incredibly helpful. I went through a process like this two different times in my life. One, when I was already doing ministry, where I realized that perhaps what I was teaching, I was a youth pastor at the time, what I was teaching and trying to get kids to do was just not working. And then I discovered the reason it wasn't working is because it wasn't about Jesus. And so I had to tear down apart, rip down some things that I was operating in. This can be a very healthy process. So let me encourage you, if you're going through a time like this, Please, please, please strip away half-truths and myths. Please tear down what is cultural and what is Christian. Rip apart traditions until you find the essence of who Jesus is. I hope you know here you have space to ask hard questions about the Bible and theological positions that perhaps you grew up with. But here's the warning. Be careful. 
The, the net result isn't that you slowly put yourself in the place of God. The danger of deconstruction isn't that you arrive at a different theological position. I hope those of you who've been around Mercy Hill for a long time, there's plenty of space here. Like you can doubt and you can question and you can push and we can disagree about all sorts of things here. The danger is that in the process, you start to slowly believe that your ability to reason and think through these things is ultimate. And what you lose is an actual ability to worship the actual God. And you or me, just like N.T. Wright said, slowly drift where you assume this God-like position and God and the Bible and theology and the community of the church and everything else exists to inform or to serve you. And in this way, the irony is you just simply reconstruct what you set out to tear down to begin with. Right? You set out to find what is true. You set out to tear off traditions or previous positions or things that you learned from your church growing up or things that you assumed. And then what you end up embracing is just another system built on man. But this time, instead of a community of people, it's just you. The issue at the heart of it is a worship issue. That we would be a people, just like what N.T. Wright says, who no longer tremble before the God of the universe, who no longer experience joy in the gospel and being adopted into God's family, that no longer have a fire in our belly to serve and love our neighbors, that are no longer longing to be a, a part of something other than our own comfortable lives. So let me give you maybe just a thought, all right? In my experience, most of the young adults doing deconstruction, most of the ones that I've talked to at our church, here's where they start. They start with the doctrine of man. Now this summer, we're gonna dive into the doctrine of man together, but they start with what they believe to be true about people, specifically around ethical or social issues. And that's often the impetus for why they start to deconstruct. I was taught this at my church growing up, but I met some people who believe something different about these issues, and they seem to be nice, lovely people, and so this sparks a journey to kind of break these things apart. Let me just, this is my encouragement, dad encouragement, all right? Pastor, Brandon, dad encouragement. Why don't you start with God? Why don't you start with the character and nature of who God is? Why don't we start discovering not who we are first or who our neighbor is first, but what if this process began when we just said, you know what I want to know? I want to know who God is first. And I'm going to viciously tear down any improper belief I've ever had about God. And then I'm going to figure out who I am. You see, one way starts with worship of God. One way starts with the exaltation of me. All right, dad rant over. Everybody good? Good, all right. Second thing, here's the way the disciples respond. 
They respond with doubt. So let's back up in the story a little bit, verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And when they woke him, they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What's the immediate assumption by the disciples when they're going through a storm? They are doubting that Jesus cares about their future. They are doubting that Jesus cares about their lives. They are doubting that Jesus is willing to do something to save them. And then he awoke, rebuked in a word, the wind and the sea, peace be still. The wind ceased, there was a great calm. And then what does he, he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We are like this. Things are going wrong, there's chaos, I don't know, a global pandemic. And immediately our response is, God, why don't you care about me? Why didn't you stop the cancer? Why did you allow the accident? Why did you let me marry into this madness? And we, just like the disciples, interpret God's love and intention for us based on our current circumstances. So we lose a job. I go, Jesus, you don't care? We lose a loved one. We say, Jesus, you don't, you don't care? Our marriage is on the rocks. Our relationship didn't work out the way we thought it was going to work out. Our degree program got canceled at our school. Jesus, don't you care? We walk through a global pandemic. You're like, Jesus, don't you care? But I think the response that Jesus gives is almost more frightening than any of the rest of the story. He says, what about your faith? I don't think the idea here is the amount of faith. I don't, Jesus, I don't think Jesus is saying like, bro, if you just had more faith, this would have worked out. That's the way we think about it. Because again, we think that everything is dependent on us. And so if something is wrong, it's because of something that we lack, something that we didn't do. I think the question in here is, Jesus is saying is, who or what are you placing your faith in? You know who's in the boat with you? You gonna trust me? Or are you going to trust what you see or are experiencing all around you? Now, here's why this is terrifying. Because it means it is highly probable that Jesus allowed the storm to happen in the first place. That this entire event is designed for Jesus to ask his disciples this question. He didn't, the storm did not escape his attention, even when he's asleep. And so he's pushing in and saying, hey, hey let's, let's figure something out real quick together, guys. Who are you going to trust in? You just saw I spoke a word, and the wind and the waves obey my word. So as we continue together in this journey, who do you think deserves your trust? Tim Keller says that it's like Jesus is responding in this way. Your premise is wrong. You should have known much better. I do allow people I love to go through storms. You had no reason to panic. You hear what he's saying? That often our premise is wrong. 
that we think because God loves us that, he's, that every circumstance is going to be perfect. There's going to be no suffering, no hardship, no difficulty. And Jesus is pushing back on that with his disciples here and going, no, no, no. The question isn't what you're going through. The question is, who are you going through it with? This is where these two ideas collide, the way Jesus answers our fear and our faith. It reminds me of uh, a story uh, from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like, bro, we talked about this story a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So in case you guys didn't notice, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is basically the book of Mark. So there you go. Right? You can go back and read it again. Kids book, you're like, oh, I'm reading the book of Mark. And you would be, right? Okay. But there's this scene. You remember this scene? Lucy, the kids, has heard whispers of Aslan, the lion. She doesn't know it's a lion, though. So when she finds out it's a lion, she's shocked. Here's what she says. Aslan is a lion. This is what Mr. Beaver says. I'm sorry. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan then responds, ooh, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that is what this story is trying to get us to realize. That's the question Jesus is asking. Am I safe? Absolutely not. I control the wind and the waves. I'm unpredictable and untamable just like the sea. But I'm good. Here's the only difference. Here's the difference, the choice for you and me. You go, well, why would I follow Jesus? It's not what I'm after. The wind and the waves, nature is unpredictable. Your life is unpredictable in a variety of ways. But guess what? Nature doesn't care about you. It's indifferent towards you. But Jesus loves his people. Also in this story, Mark is using language on purpose to get you and I to think about another story. A story from the Old Testament, the story of a prophet named Jonah. See, Jonah flees from God. He heads the opposite direction of where God wants him to go, and he gets on a boat. And as he's on this boat going across the uh, ocean, guess what happens? A great storm. And in the middle of the great storm, guess what happens? Professional sailors freak out and think they're going to die. Sound familiar? And these professional sailors are freaking out, and they think they're going to die, and they have to go find Jonah. Guess where Jonah is? Sleeping, Right? And so Jonah the prophet gets woken up and they go, hey, what are you doing? We're all praying to our different gods. Why don't you pray to your God? Because we're all going to die. And then God's, uh, the God of Jonah shows up, quiets the storm. And the sailors in that story, guess what? Just like the disciples are even more terrified. So it's a great fear. It's one difference between two stories. One difference. Jesus stays in the boat, but if you remember from the story of Jonah, Jonah says, you got to throw me overboard. That's the only way this works. You have to sacrifice me for you. But maybe what Mark is trying to show us is these two stories aren't that different after all. That the reason that we can trust that Jesus is good, 
And the reason that we, we can know that he loves us despite our circumstances is because he was sacrificed for us. Because he is God in the flesh who came willingly to lay down his life for us in our place. That he, while not in this story, but later on in the book of Mark, was thrown overboard. That he even said of himself, what he was going to give to us was this sign of Jonah. And that Jesus died for us in our place on the cross. And that just like Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days, he rose to new life. So maybe what Mark is trying to show us, trying to hint at for us, is that this story happens in a bigger story. And in the bigger story, we see that Jesus not only commands the wind and the waves, but that Jesus is the one who's willing to lay down his life to save us from sin and death. So, big idea today, all the way at the end, here's what it is. Jesus is the true king who answers our greatest fears and doubts with his own love for us. The greatest answer to any fear you might have the greatest answer to any doubt you might have is not necessarily your circumstances changing, not necessarily an intellectual realization, not necessarily that your degree program gets back on track or fill in the blank. The greatest answer is knowing that the God who calms the wind and the waves loves you and his intentions for you are good. And we know that, not because of our circumstances, but because of the cross. So I think there's a lot of implications for us today. We're just going to come back to this one for today. This question of Jesus, where or who is the object of your faith? In whom are you trusting? So today I would just encourage you in the middle of a storm, in the middle of smooth sailing. Things seem insane when things seem like they're really, really good. Today, let's just ask ourselves this question. In whom do I trust the most? What I see, what I think, my circumstances, or in the true king who intends good for me and I know he loves me because of his death and resurrection. 